stand up and read from Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time to be together. And we pray, Father, that our hearts and our minds are open. May they be open to your spirit. May your spirit speak to us. Work in us and transform us more into your image. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So there's a quote I read uh, a few weeks ago in a book. It is a quote from the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And I know, I'm starting with Nietzsche. This is going to be fun. But stay with me here for a minute. In his book, The Will of Power, which is a compilation of his essays... Nietzsche is writing a, crit a critique of religion, specifically Christianity. And, and this is the quote. He writes this. I think I put it up here. I did. What is wrong with Christianity is that it refrains from doing all those things that Christ commanded should be done. Look, I'm not a fan of Nietzsche. But that quote stung a little bit when I read it. In a world that feels like it's on fire with fury and vitriolic language at every turn. In a world in which with all of this going on, it can be easy for all of us to be pulled into the madness. And I'm reminded when I read Acts in Paul's missionary journeys, just how easy it is for individuals to get caught up in a riot. I mean, if you've ever read Acts 17 in Thessalonica, they start a riot, and there's people there, and they're like, we don't know, we're just a part of the riot. Like, people are yelling at Paul, so we're going to yell too. It's easy to just get pulled up into the fire and fury. Because that's the thing about fire, fire and fury. It has this power to seduce us into believing, like, it's the right way. And I mean, let's be honest, society tells us today that the loudest voice gets the final say. Society will even promote fire and fury as a virtue. We've coined terms such as owning one another, owning somebody if they're in the opposing party, as if that is what life is all about, owning someone or something. And boy, is it easy to get caught up in all that noise and nonsense. It's easy to find ourselves following the crowd and the noise. And we say things about others that we should not be saying. We name call. We dehumanize those with different opinions. And well, we can just be mean. Remember a few weeks ago, hashtag be kind. And I asked myself, why does all this happen? Why is it when I read that quote from Nietzsche that it stings just a little bit? Why does this happen to those who claim the name of Jesus? Christians. And we have to be honest with ourselves. I have to be honest with myself. Because our witness, how we live, how we speak, and how we act in this world is for all to see and experience. Can we agree with that? Going back to the very beginning of this sermon series, our life, how we do all of these things, will be a testimony to our faith. 
whatever that faith is in, it will be a testimony to it. It will be a testimony to a faith in Jesus, or it will be a testimony to something else. Even if you claim to be a Christian, it may not be a testimony to faith in Jesus. I have in all of this, as I write this beginning, a view of the Thanksgiving table this week. And the Christmas table in the next month. I was reading an article this morning that told, that told me about the do's and don'ts of the Thanksgiving table. One of the don'ts, don't get into arguments just for argument's sake. Don't speak about sensitive topics at the Thanksgiving table. I have in my view these tables. I have in my view the many gatherings and get-togethers that will be happening over this holiday season. And yes, I have in my view what next year will be, 2024 in this country. We all know what it is. And I wonder something. I wonder what your faith and my faith will look like, what it will sound like to others. I wonder if we too will find ourselves caught up in the fury and the vitriol of the next year. I wonder if we too will believe the virtue set by the world that it's all about winning at all costs. And as I speak all of these things to you, as I wrote all of these things down, I'm already exhausted. I'm already exhausted thinking about 2024, and it's still 2023, folks. And so the Hebrew writer today in our reading employs a metaphor. A metaphor that I think will, would resonate with the listeners of the current time, this first century community, but also will resonate with us. After the writer gives us a, a working definition of faith, you remember that in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. The writer builds on this definition as we see in verse 2. He builds on the definition by showing us the many lives that witness to this faith. And throughout our readings in Hebrews 11, we have read about the many exemplars of faith who have paved the way, who have shown us what faith looks like in this world. Each building upon the next person, each learning from the generation before them about what it means to place their trust, their entire trust in God. And now it comes in Hebrews 12, it comes to the readers of the letter, the readers of the community of Jesus who have been dealing with the problems of life and faith like many of us do each day. Day in and day out, the readers of Hebrews deals with the tension of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus alongside the goings on in the world around them. You know of them, they're a lot like today, and it can be exhausting and even easy for us to give up, a lot like them in the first century. It can be exhausting and easy just to give up, to look around and go, what is this all for? What is this all about? Do I really need to be doing any of this? And so the writer does what good writers do. They play with the imagination a little bit. They get kind of our mind thinking about it, but not just thinking about it in terms of words. They start putting imagery in our mind. So Hebrews 12, the writer employs two metaphors alongside one another. The running of a race, an athletic competition, alongside a great cloud of witnesses. 
the crowd. My daughter yesterday got to go, was at A&M and got to go to an A&M football game. It's her first time to be with 94,000, sorry Richard, 94,000, but yay Tommy, right? Yeah, uh, but 94,000 other people. And they were playing ACU and 94,000 people thought it would be fun to show up for that football game. And Laurie's talking to me and I go, can you imagine 103,000 at a game? And she just got quiet. I mean, this is kind of the metaphor being used here. The great cloud of witnesses, this massive crowd of people. And here the writer says that all of those heroes of faith who we read about in Hebrews 11, they make up the enormous crowd cheering for you in this race. While faith sometimes can feel like a lonely thing, because faith is connected to life, and life, as we know, is no easy race. And maybe that's why the Hebrew writer uses this metaphor of both an athletic competition and crowd for life of faith. Because you see, here's the thing about faith as he starts bringing this into effect. There is a start to faith and there is a finish to faith. But here's the thing. There is also everything in between. If you've ever run a race, you've got all the adrenaline for the start, do you not? You're looking forward to the start. You know there's a finish. The only problem with the in-between is it can be a whole long way. When I ran a half marathon a few years ago, 13 point something miles, 13 miles, and I know some of you have probably ran marathons, 26 miles. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you do it. Uh, but 13 miles like everything in your mind at like mile six, it's not about your legs. It's about mentally thinking, oh my gosh, I'm at mile six and I'm not even halfway done yet. You have to get to like six and a half to get there. Everything in between is what this race is about. It's the in-between of faith in this life that I think the, uh, the writer is talking about. It is the in-between of life where we see the disagreements and the discouragements and the difficulties. And yet, what does he say? He says, let us run with perseverance. The writer implores us today that faith in this life will take endurance. And you, you have to be trained for everything and anything. Endurance is hard. Building an endurance level is not something that comes easy. When you train for a half marathon, it's not like I got up on a Sunday and was like, I'm going to run a half marathon. It took like four months of endurance training and endurance training. And it took four months of like sometimes running being great and other times I don't want to run. I'm sore. It takes encouragement. It takes routine. It takes concentration. It takes the imagination of being able to see the end goal. Of realizing that if you start, there is always a finish. And realizing that that finish is pretty good. After the writer has told us of all the stories of faith, of all the stories of struggle and victory, of all the stories of hope and despair of life, I think we begin to see clear what he's up to with this metaphor. It's like a coach in the fourth quarter. It's like a manager in the last inning. Or it's like a parent cheering on their child in their last lap. The writer is stirring inside of us this passion that you can do it, that you can go that one last mile. 
As one theologian states, the time has come then for the preacher of Hebrews to strike fire, to stir the souls of the congregation, to get them up out of the pews and on the march to Zion. Those before us in Hebrew 11 have run their race of faith. And now they are the ones in the stands cheering, them, cheering us on, these cloud of witnesses. They are the ones who are yelling at us and telling us, you can do it. Why? Because they have done it. They have run the same course of life that we are now traveling through, the same highs, the same lows. Those highs and lows may look different from 1st century to 21st century, but they all have the same meaning and emotion. Do they not? I mean, they're, they're different in some way, but, but we understand highs and lows of life. And the Hebrew writer knows that the struggles of life are upon us in this moment as he writes Hebrews 12, because the Hebrew writer understands that's what life is. He understands that faith is tested at every turn, that the world continually applies just enough pressure just enough pressure on us to doubt, to reassess, and even to compromise our faith. And that, my friends, is exhausting. It's just exhausting. It's exhausting knowing that in this moment, right now, in this hour, faith can be pretty good. We're surrounded by one another. It's also exhausting to know that tomorrow is Monday. And it's going to be life. We might not say it out loud, but there are times you know that we wonder. And there are times I can imagine as the Hebrew writer writes to this community in the first century. And even as we looked at Hebrew 11 and those, those who are mentioned in the, this faith hall of fame. That the question begins to wonder, is all this really worth it? I mean, it's not hard to just stop running and walk off the course. And I think the writer in his mind, has that. It's so easy for those in the community. He's looking at those in the community who are just on the edge, wondering if it's just going to walk off the course. But for the Hebrew writer, this race counts. This race means life. The stories before us are the proof that this race matters. The endurance of those mentioned before it is to the writer proof of faith's reality. So the writer encourages us to follow in the footsteps of the witness before us. Follow in their footsteps. They run the race. They understand the path. Throw off as he talks about all of these things which hinder us and cause us to stumble along the way. Lay aside every weight that sin clings to so closely. This is where we have to be honest in our life. That, that there are those things that cling to us. There is that sin that holds tight to us, that keeps whispering in us. And yet the Hebrew writer says, let go of that. Follow those who have gone before you who were able to release those things and see what they received in the end. When I read this part of the text... When the course feels too long, when the faith muscles are sore and exhausted, and you know how, much, how easy it is to get sore. If you've never worked out and you decide tomorrow you're going to work out, well then Tuesday is going to be terrible. Because muscles are going to be sore. We know that when we're sore, then we have to think, do I really want to do this on Tuesday? Because it wasn't great on Monday. And, and the Hebrew writer knows this, that these faith muscles get tired and they get sore. And I think the writer has this sense and has heard of the difficulties of the communities that he's writing to. That it would be easy just to quit 
or give in because it gets hard. When it gets tiring, we, 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 have to, we have to find a reason to get up. And that's what I'm reminded of, of what the Hebrew writer's talking about here. What I'm reminded of is this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus speaking says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Hebrew writer says in this way, what do we do? Jesus points to us in Matthew 11 and says, take me on. I'm not going to burden you. In fact, I'm going to make it easier. And what does the Hebrew writer write in verse 2? He says this, so look to Jesus the pioneer, the author and perfecter, however your version is, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus is what he says. He's right there in front of you, just on the horizon. He has followed, he has run the same path you are running today. That's right, the Hebrew, Hebrew writer says, Jesus, Emmanuel, as we get into the Christmas season, God is with us, has set the pace and has shown us the way forward. Jesus is our prize, but we're not doing it alone, not at all. Faith is not this lonely life, not at all. It can feel that way, but the, reminder, the writer reminds us that we have not only the great cloud of witnesses cheering us on, but we have Jesus right there in front of us who said, I've done this. Jesus, our pioneer and perfecter, has showed us the way to live. He didn't just speak it in platitudes. He didn't just speak it and say, well, good luck. I hope you can do this. No, Jesus lived the life commanded. Verse 3, consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. He showed us the path that lay before us by enduring what? Enduring the cross and the shame that went with it. Jesus both endured the shame of a criminal's death and the shame of ridicule. And we all understand, we might not understand the shame of death, but we do understand the shame of ridicule, do we not? And I believe we understand that. I believe we understand what happens when shame comes from others. We understand being mocked. We understand being scorned by family and friends. We know what it feels like to be tiny and unnoticed. We know what it feels like to be left out. Especially in a world that prides itself on language such as winning, owning, and canceling. We understand it. We understand in a world that likes to name call in general. Shame has become a weapon against others. In sidebar, there is a healthy idea of shame. We'll talk about it at some point. I'm reading a really good book on it right now. We'll get there later. Paul actually employs some of this, but that's not what he's talking about here. Jesus ran the path of shame. Why? For the sake of joy. Jesus turned shame on its head and put shame under his foot. Jesus now provides our model for living in faith, for living a life of faith, that shame holds no power over us because in Jesus there is what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing easy about living the way of Christ as we read this text. Picking up our cross daily will come at a cost, but will also come with a reward. Faith is not easy when a world's on fire. But the Hebrew writer continues to encourage us in this text. And in verses 12 and 13, he says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees 
and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us are now saying, you can do it. The finish line is just right there, they're saying. You're almost there. You can see it. Jesus is just ahead of you. He's gone through the race. He's run the hills. He's there cheering you on. And the writer says, Jesus' way is the best way. And in the end, limping, crawling, being beat up and tired at the finish line, you will win. And you will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. If you have any needs this morning, come now as we stand and as we sing.